This episode is sponsored by Horizon Capital, an M&A and micro-private equity firm that acquires and grows SaaS companies. Horizon Capital only works with SaaS companies generating between 500K and 5 million in annual recurring revenue, where they help them unlock the true value of their business and scale to the next level. Whether you're ready to move on to your next startup or want to work with the right growth partner, Horizon's team will work with you to find the best structure possible. From M&A strategy to capital investments, SaaS is all they do. Simple as that. If you're a SaaS founder with less than $5 million in annual recurring revenue and are looking to sell your business, visit horizoncapital.com today and get a free valuation. If you'd like to sponsor the SaaS District podcast or recommend any guests that you think would be valuable to be on the show, visit horizoncapital.com slash SaaS podcast today. Thanks again, folks. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Akil Jabbar, and welcome back to another episode of SaaS District. In today's episode, we'll be talking about how to grow your traffic, users, and revenue with scalable marketing and growth playbooks. Today, we have our guest, Kieran Flanagan, joining us. Kieran is an author, startup advisor, mentor, who also runs his own podcast called The Growth TLDR, which I highly recommend you guys check out, and is currently the VP of Marketing and Growth at HubSpot. He is a thought leader on growth marketing and speaks at events across the globe. Kieran has a proven track record of helping SaaS businesses from startups all the way to enterprise level grow their traffic, users, and revenue, which we'll, which we'll be talking about all about today. So welcome, Kieran. Thank you for joining SaaS District. Glad you could make it on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on. Awesome. So for those in our audience who don't have too much of your background, can you share a bit about your background? What was it that led to your role as joining HubSpot as the VP of marketing in 2016, where I think now you're managing a 60 plus team of marketers? Yeah, so I'll give you a little bit of the background. So um, basically, I, I was a failed uh, software developer. I always actually wanted to be a, a developer. After leaving college, I went to college and studied computer science. And I really wanted to build things. That was what I was passionate about. And then it turned out I wasn't very good at <laughs> being a developer. So I wanted to still try to figure out how to um, build and grow things. And the best way I could be involved in that was to do marketing. And so I went and started to do some search and started to do some paid marketing and then found my way into Salesforce, which is a pretty well-known SaaS company, then Marketo. And then HubSpot. And then in HubSpot, I've kind of really done a couple of things. Helped grow out the international business. Helped to kind of grow out this product-led business, which is uh, what HubSpot really is today. And then helped to scale all of the kind of customer acquisition teams that HubSpot has. And all of the demand we generate across the globe. Very cool. Very cool. So I guess that that was a good blessing in disguise, right? That you didn't follow through with becoming a developer. Do you, do you actually use some of those uh, skill sets that you've developed as a developer and use them in, in your day-to-day marketing? Yeah, just to be clear, I would have still been a developer. Like if I could go back and choose, I would choose to be a developer again. I just, I think it might be e- easier today with the languages that are available. Like some of the languages may be a little bit easier uh, or I could just maybe have done it better. But uh that that was uh, I or I just never click. I feel like, like if you're learning the languages, if you're learning a different language. It kind of clicks with you or it doesn't. And for some reason, coding didn't click with me. But what clicked with me was how to like 
grow things. And yeah, I did use them because I still was pretty technical, right? I did four years as a, I did four years in computer science. I did another three or four years working as a software engineer, coding in Perl, Python, um, actually doing a bit of coding within Unix and Linux, which is kind of <laughs> odd. Um, and so when I when I went into uh, digital marketing, I think I was working with a lot of marketers who were kind of working with developers and designers to build things, grow things. And I think they struggled at some point to kind of talk to those people or work with those people. And for me, I was coming from that background and I, and I thought in some ways like that, I just wasn't good enough to think like that and then put it into code. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I imagine like learning Python now is a lot easier than trying to play with C or C++, right? Years ago. Yeah, like I think, <laughs> you know, I still like, I always get the itch and I would go back in and and sometimes, oh, I really should learn how to code. code. And I, I was like looking at Ruby or looking at all these different and just having these visions of myself sitting in my room and building yeah. this amazing web app and I've got to the point now where I think I, I really do believe you should lean into your strengths and outsource your me- things you're mediocre or weak, weak at. So I think I will always be asking someone else to build something if I want to build. Absolutely. I agree with that. So let's get into kind of the weeds of the, you know, looking into SaaS companies. So we come across several SaaS companies that we work with. So they're growing, they're expanding at a reasonable rate. You know, they're growing year over year, month over month, but they don't have that growth engine to compete with uh you know, those, those, they're, they're bigger competitors, um, either because they lack the scalable framework for like organic growth or they lack, you know, VC capitals that the competitors have. So they're, they're just unable to grow fast enough that, you know, what they're, what they're hoping to achieve. What would you say, and, you know, based on your experience are some of the most common growth challenges that SaaS founders face in today's environment and what, what can you suggest to them that they can do to overcome them? Yeah, I think so. First of all, it, it is hard, right? It's easy for I do. I see this sometimes, and I'm probably guilty of it. Where we go, like I'm a pre-pandemic conference speaker, right? And I would go to conferences and I would talk about growth, and I would say, "Hey, like this is how you grow, and here's examples of how we grew, and this is how you double and triple your your demand and your traffic." But it's really not that easy anymore because I every market is somewhat saturated or very competitive, people are better at their jobs, right? I, I, and definitely in the marketing and growth side of things, we marketing has evolved from this uh, place where it really wasn't in the kind of, it wasn't on the table with sales and all of these other teams who generate revenue. And I think to get onto that table, marketing have got better at being able to be part of the core go-to-market and actually generate real revenue for, for the business. And to do that, marketers, I think, have upgraded their skill sets and marketers are, are really good at doing that. And the tools we've got are better. Right? Yeah. If you look at the MarTech space, we have just so many great tools we can use to grow our business. So that's the kind of, you know, mm-hmm. not to depress people, but that's the first, you know, that's the, uh, that's the, yeah, like trying to empathize with founders. It's hard and anyone who tells you differently when you go to these conferences most of that stuff is just like conference speak. It's not reality of growth. Sure. I do think that you can approach things in a way where you don't try to just look at a carbon copy of your competitors and think, well, how do I compete on the same things that they're competing on? But I think one of the mental models I'm fascinated by is your know, first principles and how you break apart, um, how you break, break apart problems into kind of their fundamentals and trying to see if there's ways that you can do things differently just because all your competitors are doing one tactic or one channel 
Um, it doesn't mean that that's the right way to do it or there's something that you can't do. So I think there's a couple of things, right? I think if you, if the two reasons companies fail for me are they've misunderstood the problem they're solving and they've solved the problem that no one, not that no one cares about, but no one cares enough about that it makes a big impact in their life, it makes a difference if they, if they have that thing or not, right? And that's the kind of Sean Ellis NPS, like how, how, um, much would you miss this product? He has a whole, he has one survey for it. And it's like, how much would you miss this? We took this away from you. The other one is they kind of misunderstand or they don't think earlier enough of how am I going to acquire demand for this? And that's what Brian Balfour calls product mark, product channel fit. So you have product market fit and your product channel fit. And on the product channel fit is like, how do I build something into my product or how do I, at an early point, start to figure out where my product will actually acquire demand from and trying to figure out if you can skew your product and your go-to-market into a couple of places where you can actually acquire demand and you can have something that helps you differentiate yourselves from competitors. Um, one of the examples I used to always use was, uh, I think it's there's, I think their name is Genius now, they've kind of rebranded, but they were a site that had um, rap lyrics, right? They would just show you the lyrics to songs. That, that was a really competitive space, right? It's wild to think how competitive that space was, but there's just a lot of lyric websites. And so how can you compete? How can you compete in that space when there's other sites that have all of these lyrics? Because if you think about it, if you break apart that problem and you kind of come at it from a first principles in terms of what you know, the, the thing you can compete on is just having more songs than any other company, right? Volume. And that's how every other brand tried to approach the problem. We'll just try to get more more uh, songs into our database. What they did is they actually pulled it apart and said, no, what we can actually do is we can create better user-generated content around these lyrics. And so they embedded these things into the product that allowed you to actually, if anyone, I, I love hip hop music. And one of the things in hip hop is trying to figure out what the lyrics actually mean. Mm. And they had user-generated content. That you can comment all of the lyrics, annotate the lyrics and actually say, hey, this is what they were talking about. This is what they were talking about. And because they did that, they ranked better in Google than all of these other brands and they dominated and, and they went on to be the most successful company within that space or one of them. And I think that's how you need to think about how you can actually compete in the space that you're in. Very cool. That's actually an awesome example. I never thought of that, that, you know, you, you compete on content, you think just creating more content, but yeah, having something else built into your product, I think that's more, like you said, product-led growth that leads to, yep. to some kind of scalable. Now, what do you suggest for B2Bs? You talked about the channels, right? Uh, you know, there's B2B SaaS scale-ups, so they've done really, really well in their growth journey, but they've been primarily led by maybe just one or two acquisition channels, right? And then they hit a growth ceiling. Um, what do you suggest to them to help them break through? Are they, should they just move to the third channel, you know, look at some new, you know, whether it's paid, whether it's, it's you know, just trying new things or should they, you know, modify what's working and, and try to f find some other way to break through? The first thing to do is panic. <laughs> no, like there is some amount of panic because I've been in this situation. So um, he, here's the thing, right? The thing that you can guarantee, like actually, if you hit the if you hit the point where you went from startup to scale up and then went scale up to hit ceiling on channel, it means actually you've been successful. So first of all, great, you're in a great you're you've had a great run, right? You're probably a public company. Um, you've probably had, had a good run on your stock price. So like things are in general going well, but you want to, you want to do even better. And so there's a couple of things I think about in terms of, uh, the growth ceilings. One of the things is you want to always diversify from a position of strength, right? And so what tends to happen is you're like, okay, I'm growing from like a lot of the mobile apps grow from paid media, um, a lot of 
uh, the kind of large review sites grow from Google, right? There's just certain channels that are going to help you scale. And outside of those channels, it's going to be hard for you to find something else. But you want to diversify from a position of strength. So when you are in a scale-up company, one of the things you want to be really good at is forecasting, right? So one of the things that we do is we say, okay, uh, we do a top-down model based upon existing trends. How do we think we're going to perform over the coming year if we keep all things the same, resources, playbooks, the same? And then we look at bottoms up and we say, how much revenue do we need to gener- generate? And then how does that translate into the amount we need to generate to hit that amount of revenue? And so then you take that, if you're kind of a leader within a scale company and you say to your team, okay, bring me back the top-down model for your channel, bring me down the playbooks that you're going to, op- you're going to operationalize to hit that growth. And what you'll start to see is a flag, right? There's some flags. You can see a flag in your month-on-month, quarter-on-quarter, you're in your growth rates within the channel. That's a flag. When you're building forecasted models and you're starting to see diminishing returns and then your team are coming back with playbooks that are just the same playbooks and they're kind of running out of ideas, that's a flag. When your team telling you um, they don't want headcount for the coming year or they want a small amount of headcount because they're not sure what else they can do or how they can how they can hire people to, to continue to grow that channel, that's a flag. And so you want to get you want to diversify from a position of strength. And so a good example of this is Canva. And so Canva, like what a phenomenal company Canva are just uh, a Goliath in terms of what they've managed to do. And what's fascinating about Canva is if you go back and look at their early growth, Canva grew from virality and there's really three types of virality right there. It's just word of mouth virality, user virality, which is your product is inherently viral. So when I use a product and I would use it with you, you would be exposed to that in a way that would make you want to sign up. A really good example of that is Calendly, right? If you think mm-hmm. about Calendly, I book a meeting with you, you see the meeting, you're like, oh, that was a good experience. Karen booked a meeting with me. What's this app? I will go sign up. And then the third type is incentivized referral, which is kind of like if you think about the PayPal story, like PayPal, the, the way PayPal grew in the early days was they actually paid you $20 to open an account. When you open the account, there was $20 in the actual uh, PayPal. And then if you actually referred other people, you would get uh, additional money in that account. And they actually, I think it was about at some point, 10, 15% of all of their demands coming through incentivized referrals. So coming all the way back to Canva, they were really growing through word of mouth. They just come you know, talking about product market fit, product channel fit. They solved the problem that people had cared about, and this was the best solution. And so you saw a lot of their growth coming from direct traffic. Mm-hmm. And what they did is they diversified from a position of strength, which is why I love their story, because they built on this, and they're still growing from virality, but they built on this amazing organic machine that every single company is now trying to copy, which is they built all of these different templates for every single use case. And they scaled out those templates and they embedded them in their ecosystem and they drove links to different places and they managed to rank. And so now they have this really nice channel in terms of organic as well. And just so people are listening and you're trying to build the Canva template model, keep in mind that Canva literally has thousands of use cases for their product. And that's why templates work for them. It's not going to work for every single brand. And so they diversified from a position of strength. And I think that's one of the critical pieces that... Um, companies miss in terms of those growth ceilings is that they wait until they hit the growth ceiling, they panic, and then they have a small amount of time that they can actually fix it because um, they're going to um, at some point plateau and it's just going to cause demotivation in the team. It's going to cause loss of trust in that team from the execs. And it's just a kind of, at that point, it just starts to kind of cascade and starts to collapse on itself. Um, the other thing I would say is just one other thing on that. I know I'm kind of going along. 
the you also want to have a ratio between the gold, like the kind of channel that you're growing from and net new channels. And so you think I have this amount of resources, X percent of it is spent on the existing growth channel, X Y percent needs to be spent on trying to discover a new channel. Um, and that ratio should probably depend upon how much growth you think is left on the existing channel. So if I'm building in search and I think, wow, there's just a ton more growth for me, maybe I can grow 100, 200, 300% more year on year, then maybe 100% of my resources should be in there. And then as that starts to diminish, I take 5, 10% and I start to look for new channels. You can kind of build that total addressable market models for channels like paid is a really easy channel to see where your diminishing point of return is. You can build that. You can somewhat build it in search. You can't build it for all things. It is kind of hard. And then just know that sometimes you can't avoid it. This is part and parcel of um, being a, a scale-up. And the way to counteract that is to have a really strong brand. So do not only invest in growth and performance marketing. Make sure you're investing in brand. And that's hard for some companies because they can't, get the metrics that tell them if the things they're doing in brand is successful. But if you don't grow your brand, and if you don't build a brand, at some point you hit these seasons, sometimes you start to pl- plateau in performance metrics, performance market metrics, and then you have nothing left. Um, and I think that's something you want to be kind of aware of. Interesting. Yeah, I like that that idea of the you know building up your brand because you talked about you know competitors. If you have that brand, if you put you know all that effort into building your brand, and you know competitor comes in and tries to steal market share, I think if you if you have that solid brand, you'll keep you know it'll, it'll keep a lot of people from you know switching over at a future point, right? And yeah, it's uh, a moat. It's a moat, right? It is a moat, absolutely. Um, and yeah, I absolutely love Canva story. I think they just raised. Well, I think let me just check here: sixty million dollars on a six billion dollar valuation a couple months ago. That's so they're, they're a unicorn status, right? They're going for it. Um, yeah, they've done something really well, so good for them. Yeah, they're a phenomenal <laughs> company. Great, and it's, yeah. just, it's just an example of a company who uh, solved a very simplistic problem incredibly right. well. Exactly. Um, so I, I just want to reiterate another point you made, which is, you know, reason why startups fail, right? So they're not solving an existing problem. Uh, the product is released too late or too soon, or the problem is just, you know, nobody's interested in solving or, or using that, you know, that, that solution. Um, so, you know, they've destined to fail because they've mis- misjudged the market opportunity and demand. What are some other best practices that you, you can suggest to help clearly identify, you know, market demand early on and maybe help reduce that risk of failure? Yeah, I, I have to be honest, I've never launched a product. So I'm definitely not someone who is a founder and found product market fit. I, I can tell you from being in a company and being part of a company with lots of different projects, projects in additional spaces. Um, It's just a lot of customer research, right? I think it's trying to understand, is this a real need that customers had? Is it a need that is, has for the like broad based appeal? Like a lot of people have this need. It's not going to be too, so niche that you just can't grow a real business from it. And I think the big thing is trying to figure out are people willing to pay? So I think a lot of the times what I see is founders create something go down a freemium path, build a user audience and because we want to do product-led, we want to do freemium. And they haven't really tested to see what people would pay for. And I think you have to try to figure out if people will pay for the core value of your product. Because if you're doing freemium, then you want to monetize the core value of your product, right? If you, a good example of this is um, Loom. I don't know if you've used Loom before, but it's the asynchronous video tool. What a great company Loom are. And the thing that they... When I was kind of watching the Loom story, they just had... Uh, they've really managed to just corner the market in terms of like that video space. And they were charging for analytics and team-based features. And recently, it looks like they've kind of changed their pricing model to charge on the number of minutes you can 
have for free to create a video. It's a right. great example of a company pivoting to monetize the core value of their product, which is the video creation. And so I think the sooner you can get to uh, understand the, will people pay for the core value of your product? I think the easier it is you to decide, e- the easier it is for you to figure out that you've got like an actual real um, market. And then I do think you want to think about, okay, well, what is a scalable way that I can grow this business? Can I see a way that I can outcompete competitors uh, right. in terms of like my go-to-market? Uh, so, you know, you, you gave two scenarios, so Loom and then also with HubSpot. I mean, you guys are focused on, on the freemium model, you know, and you you can go out and, you know, give all this free resources early on and then you gather that data. So, I mean, if Loom did what they did now, I don't know if they'd be as successful, right? Because they, they've set that limitation. I think it's only five minutes. Whereas before, I think that was what kind of got them to, you know, that viral factor and had, to, had them hit their growth was opening it up. And I think, you know, HubSpot does that really well, right? You give unlimited contacts, that's your guys' kind of biggest thing. And then you guys start setting, you know, more restrictions. Um, is, would you still suggest that, you know, early on to maybe, you know, dominate and then monetize? Is that your... your, your that, that is a, that's a fascinating... Com- I would love to have that conversation actually with a couple of, com- with a couple mm-hmm. of founders. That's a fascinating thing to think about, right? Would Loom be as successful as they had if they were monetizing the core value of the product to begin with? Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure. I think um, like their product is... It, it, I think the, you, can, like, you can counter the Loom example with Evernote, right? right. Like I, I've used this repeatedly, but Evernote is a great product and people love using Evernote, but they always struggle to figure out what their core value was and how to monetize that. And that's why you, if you go and speak to people and ask, Hey, if you go to a conference and you talk about Evernote and you say, Oh, I I do this all the time. Like raise your hands. If you use Evernote, raise your hands. If you pay for Evernote and raise your hands, if you know why you should pay for Evernote (laughs) and no one's paying for Evernote and no one knows why (laughs) they should pay for Evernote. And I think to, to the point on Loom, um, I'm not sure. I think that's a really good question. Like, it, it, there's companies like Loom and Calendly that have managed to grow very, very fast. And um, it, would either of them have been able to grow as fast if there was, from the outset, a limitation on the number of meetings you could book or the limitations on like the core value the product is, which is creating vid- videos? I'm not sure, but I think it's a it's a fascinating subject to to discuss yeah. with founders. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I think they just made that change recently. So I think maybe still too early to tell, but we'll see how that, yeah. that plays out for them. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to kind of look at the you know entire kind of funnel, uh, you know, top of the funnel first for B2B SaaS specifically, you know, the ch- obviously the challenge is increasing the traffic and then, you know, developing awareness, you know, among your com- competition, obviously it depends on the market and the solution itself, but generally uh, top of the funnel, what have you seen best strategies that work to drive traffic for, for growing companies? Uh, the best strategies is to grow traffic. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I, it, yeah. Our highest ROI. I, I know HubSpot has their what they suggest, but I'll, I want to hear from you. Yeah, I think the so it, it's really that answer differs per per um, company, right? So let's let's try to break let's try to break that sure. down. Okay. I mean, there's two, there's there's a couple of types of traffic you can generate. So let's let's just look at B two B companies. What's fascinating about B two B companies is, and uh, if we equate the way that marketing creates marketing versus the way that product creates product, they've kind of followed each other in some respects and it's had kind of impact in the way that those two things work. And so what I mean by that is, let's rewind the clock, say 15 years in B2B. 15 years ago in B2B, you kind of did create content. You probably didn't call it content marketing, but you were creating kind of these documents for decision makers. 
So they're like these white papers and these kind of like side-by-side comparisons with other products. You're kind of creating niche content for decision makers. In some ways, you're not trying to, that's never going to create that much traffic. So like B2B brands didn't have a lot of traffic, right? They had some traffic from brand, but they're not creating a lot of traffic outside of, outside of brand searches. And the kind of revolution in marketing to some respect was, okay, now we, we're going to create like this kind of media arm within our company and we're going to have, have a bottoms up content marketing strategy. And that bottoms up content marketing strategy means that we're going to create content for the end user all the way to the decision maker. And because there's more end users, people who would use your product versus kind of the decision maker, well, that means we have a lot more things we can create content around and it means we can create a lot more traffic. And so we can create a small kind of media setup within our, when on our business and we can start to really scale the number of uh, people who are visiting our website. And so I think to me, that has not changed that much in that if you are uh, a B2B company and you want to acquire traffic, you still need to have a bottoms up traffic bottoms up strategy and you need to be really good at monetizing that bottoms up strategy into customers. But there's also people discount the kind of impact of all of these end users loving your brand, loving your company company. That's one of the coming back to what we talked about in terms of like brand metrics. Or maybe I I don't know if I did talk about this podcast. It was on a call just before <laughs> this as well. So maybe I talked about it in that call. <laughs> so let me just make sure I don't gloss over that. So like when you think about building a brand, people struggle a little bit with that, right? That is hard to like define that, right? I mean, we did talk about that. And it's hard to put metrics around that. But if you don't build a brand, which is your moat, you don't have um, your performance, your performance market metrics suffer. And so having a ton of end users consume content and really feel good about the fact that you're helping them in their day-to-day lives and helping them in their careers does have some amount of like brand impact that's hard to define. So I think there's some good things about that, but also you want to monetize that. And then if you fast forward into product, like what Freemium has done for companies is we've, we've now gone bottoms up to products. So now we have a bottoms up marketing strategy. And for the most part, we have a bottoms up product strategy in a lot of companies as well, where we try to give away free products like Loom. I don't know if you have Became a, you probably became a Loom user without having to ask your manager or your CEO or the or whoever it is, can I buy this product, right? You can start to use Loom without having to actually ask anyone to use Loom. And so there's all of these products being used in companies by end users. And those end users don't have to go and tell anyone that they're using this product because they can either use the free version or the paid version is such a, on a per user basis, it's such a small amount of money. They don't need sign off for that. And so it's the bottom of strategy. And so for me, like the way that you want to build and acquire traffic is still trying to create value for your users. And you want to have the full spectrum from kind of end users to decision makers within, within your market. And then you're just trying to figure out, am I, am I doing this to acquire traffic and then monetize that traffic into just engagement? So I just mm-hmm. want to introduce those people to like customer case studies or things like that. Or am I trying to actually monetize that into leads and then convert those leads into customers? So, so just speaking about that last point. So, for example, we, um, you know, I looked at a blog recently where they did a lot of really good SEO. They've actually built the traffic, I think, from the blog specific, I think, to almost 100,000 visitors, visitors a, a month. But none of those users specifically are turning to free users. So they have a freemium model. Um, how would you effectively turn that content traffic? You build this traffic. It's obviously giving some goodwill, maybe a little bit of branding. But at the end of the day, we need those people to turn to free users. What, what do you suggest there? Content does not turn into free users at an incredibly high rate for, unless you have a very nice, neat fit from content into product. 
And so that's why I made that point at the end, which is you mm-hmm. have to define what is the goal of this like small media company within your business. And it's not always to monetize. Sometimes it's just to create awareness. And it's really important because if you, if you set the incorrect goals, you're going mm-hmm. to measure it incorrectly and you're going to, to restrict what that team can actually do to be successful. It's not that easy to convert blog into content. It's a lot easier to convert blog into like, uh, more in-depth content and leads and go through that typical scenario. There are some instances where if you have a better, again, coming back to product channel fit, there are some instances where that works in some ways. So like, let's take uh, another example of a company called PandaDoc. Okay. And PandaDoc is a company that's basically just a, a signature, like a kind of documentation sign-in. Uh, platform, right? And so no one's looking for how do I sign doc? Like no one's looking for, I think 3000 monthly searches for people who are actually looking for how do I do uh, e-signatures or signatures online. And what they were clever enough to do is actually create all of these different like document templates. So if you're looking for Mm -hmm. a social media publishing document or an agency proposal document, they can create content around that and then um, convert you into the template. And when you convert mm. into the template, you're creating an account and now you're in the product. So there's a fit there where you can get logically from that content into template, into product. What most people do is they just say, let's blog and then tell people we have a free product. It's not, right. a, it's not a natural path or a natural journey. And so that's why, that's why, that's the most common error, right? We haven't thought about our product channel fit and we haven't thought about the user journey. Most marketers and most companies should probably have a UX person think about their marketing journeys. Because I would think a good UX person would actually say, okay, well, my user journey is I come into the blog and now you show me a call to action to the free product. Does that make sense? No. Let's talk to some customers. Let's ask them questions. And too often we build things, acquire traffic, and then slap things like call actions everywhere and say, oh, why is that not monetizing? Mm. So it makes sense. So it's probably there's a, there's a gap there. Before getting them to the free user, you go from blog to here's a template, here's a, a you know ebook, a, a checklist, something like that. Get them engaged, and then you know think about future uh, conversions. Makes sense. Yeah, you have to, yeah. and then you, like the best thing to do is talk to users, right? Like, would you when you hear show them the blog post when you consume this blog post, what do you do? What would you like to do next? Here's three options. You can we'll give you this, this, and this. What one would you choose? Like, do proper user research. Um, it's, it's why I think that um, teams who are work cross-functionally will perform better in the future because product are really good at that, right? Mm, product mm. are so good at thinking about yeah. the journey that that customer's taken. How do we solve for the customer? Asking the customer, getting research from the customer. And I think that is, uh, that's something you can bring into how you build your marketing engine. Nice. And, and then any tips on, on that last part? So if you got these people sign up as free users, what have you guys done at HubSpot or you've seen elsewhere to pushing people to become paying customers, right? Because you guys give so much value just from the free model. I mean, how do you try to then justify, get them to justify to pay the, you know, start paying on a monthly? Yeah. Yeah. We built, uh, like one of the things we did when we cr- created Freemium is we built this entire kind of PQL model, product qualified lead model. And we try to find the right points of where it made sense to to inform you about the paid paid product. And so the thing about freemium is you want to, again, have someone experience the value of your product and then monetize that value, right? So you've given them some value. There's some ongoing benefit they can get, but usually they are at the point where it's just a no-brainer that they want more. And so I think trying to define 
what the core of if you like this is if we get into like what is growth right growth is how do i on product are trying to build the the value for users right they're they're trying to figure out how do i build something users care about care enough about that they will want to pay again coming back to product channel fit how do i create value for the users growth is really how do i continue to get that user to experience that value on an ongoing basis? How do I initially onboard them onto the value and then repeatedly get them to experience that value? And so you have to understand what the core value of your product is, how you can get that person to, first of all, experience that value, and then how you can get them to do it on an ongoing basis, which is more around retention. And by doing that, the upgrade to page should be somewhat of a no-brainer because they're like, oh, I get it. Like This is really valuable for me. I need to use this product. It's It's something I cannot... Uh, live without. I need it to do these things. And so, yeah, I'm going to just go pay this amount of money. And there's certain ways that people may want to buy. They may want to talk to a sales rep because it's a big enough purchase that they want to talk through it. They may just want to buy touchlessly. They may want to chat with you. They may want to book and meet with you. So trying to figure out how that person wants to interact with your sales team and buy that product is also just part of the kind of user journey. Makes sense. And then I know you guys have done a really good job when, you know, turning users into advocates and ambassadors. And I think that was all part of your branding strategy. Uh, can you talk about like what strategies did you implement at HubSpot, uh, you know, to have the, you know, bec- obviously then lead to becoming a market leader in the CR- CRM space? Yeah, I think a big part of um, how we turn uh, customers and users into advocates again is because we think more around how do we help someone's career versus how do we actually give them software, right? Again, coming back to like that user and user mentality, what we want to do is have a really big impact in your career. And we can have an impact in your career whether you use our software or not because you can consume the content. And I think a big part of where we've helped turn people into advocates is our academy. So if you go into HubSpot's academy, you're getting a world-class educational experience. And some of that is very customer-centric because it touches you how to use the HubSpot platform. But generally, if you're a marketing sales or customer success person, you can go into the academy, get world-class education, um, help you with your kind of personal growth and actually never have to kind of touch the HubSub platform. And what we try to do is just like over-index on that customer experience. So like the software is part of how you experience HubSpot and it's what part of the reason you're happy with HubSpot. But there's these all of these other things that are helping you to be successful that you can get within the HubSpot ecosystem. And I think if you think about why people become advocates, it's really because they love the product and they love the customer experience. There's no point having the best product in your in your space if you have to ring when you actually uh, submit a customer support ticket. The experience is just terrible, or when you're trying to fix something, it's just terrible. And like that, go, that the good example of that is like every broadband company. But if mm-hmm. I actually go and talk to someone and say what broadband company they use, every single person says to me, "Oh, this company is phenomenal." unless you have to, unless you have a problem. This company is amazing unless you have a problem because no one wants to deal with their support. And so you can't just think about the turning of people into advocates about they just love your product. They have to love the customer experience. And mm-hmm. I think that's one of the ways that I see custom, uh, companies changing to think of customer success, customer support as a core part of their go-to-market and how they turn people into evangelists for their company. Yeah, I love what you guys built with the academy, and you see people, right? You guys give that certification, and people are proud to, you know, use that and and share that on, you know, across their 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 profile. And I think that's that's awesome viral virality that you guys built there. Um, yep. So yeah. I want to talk kind of like at the bottom of the funnel, you know, after they've kind of activated, um, or you know, they're looking to activate and become, uh, you know, paid users. Let's say you have a customer, let's say LTV of I don't know two thousand versus like enterprise of 
20,000, but let's say, you know, you're trying to reduce uh, the time from, say, qualified lead to deal closed. I don't know, in this case, let's say it's 14 days. Um, but, you know, with that shortened sales cycle, it forces, you know, marketers to maybe place more filter, um, to filter out the low-quality leads versus allowing, you know, longer sales cycles for the account executive. What, what are your suggestions for, you know, setting up effective filters for leads while still balancing, you know, quality volume of, of sales, sales calls? I don't know if there's a question for you or for a sales team, but... <laughs> no, I, so I'm, I'm just making sure I answered the, so you, so basically if we're trying to, let's say that we're trying to prioritize, we generate all these leads and is it potential, like the potential LTV just based on customer size? Like yeah, we're just yeah, prioritizing by customer size? Yeah. Wow. That's a whole other, like that's ops, right? So how do we yeah. actually <laughs> build lead, how do we build lead queues? <laughs> um, that's a whole, we could do a whole hour on just how to, okay. to, to build, to build lead queues. I think for, for, um, I think for, for, for when we're trying to, when you're trying to think about building lead queues, you want to try to figure out what your, like it comes just down to figuring out your demographics and your engagement fit. Like if you think about B2B and mm-hmm. just how we are trying to optimize the kind of informal experience, which is the kind of experience you're talking about. Yeah. It's for the most part, if you think about two by two access, it's mostly kind of, um, fit on one axis and engagement on the other axis, right? And you're fit for the most part in B2B, like you talked about fit there, which is like company of a certain size, company in a certain geography, person in a certain role, like they're just mm. for demographic and firmographic information. And then you have this interesting thing, which is engagement. And engagement is like, what are the triggers that this person has done to show that they are some way interested in the actual product? And mm. so uh, it, that would be for a traditional B2B company who does not have a product-led model, that would be they visited the pricing page or they visited the, this product page or they did something else on the website and you can kind of trigger uh, an engagement score or you can upscore that person. And the, in the product-led world, it's, it gets better, right? Because you have them within the product and you can say, well, if they do this thing and they take this action. So a good example is when we were building out our freemium model, what we did was we took all of the customers who went into free and then upgraded into, cust- and, into customers and we did regression analysis and we looked to see what they did within the first 30 days before they became the customers. And we could mm. say, you d- this person used this feature, this feature, and it turned out there was five features that everyone who actually went on to become a customer usually actually used. Not, not always, but for the most part, the large majority use these features. So then you can kind of build a model to say if they do these features that we can show that they are high quality leads, not just because they are um, good fit, company size, role size, geography, but because they are actually also doing the things that would suggest that they have a high intent to use the paid product. And so I think it really comes down to trying to build a model that works for your sales team. You definitely get input from the sales team across Mm -hmm. that fit and engagement axis. And then you're trying to iterate and test that thing. I think marketing needs to have a really great relationship with sales where they can say, okay, we're going to tweak the dials here and we would love to try this with some of your reps and like A-B test it, have this these reps get these kind of leads and prioritize in this way. Get these leads to lead, uh, get these reps to have these leads and prioritize in this way, and then just talk about what their experience was like and try to iterate your way onto the correct way to prioritize prioritize demand. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Appreciate that. Um, so, last kind of hard question here. So, I know you mentor a lot of B two B SaaS founders. How do you you know work when you're working with them? How do you typically suggest them to structure 
their marketing budgets because they're either at a point where they're looking to optimize for cash flow and they're running a smaller experiment or they're just trying to maximize, you know, MRR, ARR growth. Um, when does it make sense to consider either option or, or you suggested them? Yeah. I, so when I talk to them about, when I talk to founders about budget, it's more around like, I have this amount of money to spend on my growth for the next year. And yeah. how should I prioritize that? And I think what I try to, to walk through is, okay, you have a finite, especially in certain company sizes, there's just a finite amount of money you have. There's a finite amount of resources you have, and there's just an infinite amount of things you could spend it on. And there's an infinite amount of um, places you could allocate that to. And what I try to get people to do is prioritize. And so really great leadership is saying no. Um, and because mm-hmm. it's the hardest thing to do, like it, it's really interesting, right? You can have the, you can have managers who get the best 360 review, like people and their team love them and think they're great. doesn't mean they're a good manager, right? It just means they're really good at saying yes, because saying no and getting people still to believe that you're doing the right thing for the team and, and them is really hard. And the same way sure. being a founder, it's really easy to be a founder people love. That doesn't mean you're going to be a successful founder. And so when you have budget, you have you don't want to peanut butter. You don't want to go, well, I'll just spend an equal amount of money across these different things. Especially in an early stage, you want to say, actually, I'm going to really focus in on being world-class at these one or two, two things. And one of the conversations that always sticks with me, one of my favorite founders is Wade Foster from Zapier and talked to him on the podcast. And one of the things he told us, like we asked, like, how did, how did you build Zapier from like a bootstrap company into a billion dollar company? That's like incredibly rare. And he's, and what, how did you become world class at all these things? And he said, well, we were rarely world class at all the things. We just tried to be world class at a couple of things. And all of the other things we knew we were not doing uh, as well as we uh, wanted to, but we were comfortable given where we were and our resources we had that we would get to them at some point. And I think that's how you think of your marketing budget, which is okay. And they'll come in year. What are the couple of things that I need to be world class at? And how do I over index to spend to be on those things? And everything else I'm going to be comfortable with that they're not going to be at that bar for the coming year. But I know I'll get to them as I continue to scale and continue to grow. Makes sense. I love that. Um, and then, you know, adding to that, where are you focusing your own, you know, marketing efforts and budget for your own brand? Because I know you have your, you know, growth TLDR podcast show. You've got your own, you know, website. Are you doing anything else to, to build your own brand? Uh, that's a really good question. So <laughs> I have the, yeah, I, the po- the podcast is interesting because the podcast was really, um, I, I like I'm, I'm in Dublin. I don't have the tech Southern Valley just scratch at my door and, and meet someone in tech and have a coffee. And yeah. so I really wanted to just use it as a way to like meet people and have good conversations. And it turned out people really enjoyed it and started listening. And so the podcast, I'm trying to um, figure out a way to make it more uh, scalable and less of my time. Um, which is hiring people. And then we are, we have a newsletter uh, that we're starting to do, which you can all find on the website. And then we have a community. You can join the waiting list. So the thing that we found was people would listen to the podcast, but they wanted to discuss the show. They wanted to ask the person who we did the show with questions. We always do these kind of graphics and people really wanted to access the custom graphics we built. They're always, they're actually always just two by twos business mental (laughs) models. Um, and so that's probably going to be the next thing next year. But that's really, yeah, I think they're just, they're fun side projects. And for me, they're just about connecting and learning and helping. And I think that's what I enjoy doing. Very cool. Um, and I believe you also angel invest in companies that are, you said, product-led and remote-first uh, companies. What are you typically looking to invest in for any of our listeners that may be looking to raise for an angel investor industry stage experience? What, what are you looking for? Uh, generally, the founders... And, um, because I think I, like, I, I'm, 
passionate about remote work and know something about product-led companies. So I try to stick to the things I know. And so I think founders, uh, an idea that's somewhat differentiated in a kind of good space, either in that kind of remote work space or that they have a product-led go-to-market. Um, I try to stick to what I know or or I don't think I would be that. <laughs> the sure. investment is hard enough and I try to stick to things that I think I know know something about or I'll probably not be very successful. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> cool. Uh, Kieran, who or what have been three resources that could be books or mentors that you, you can say that have been instrumental to your success of where you are today? Who do you look up to now or what, what have you read recently that you really love? Yeah, I think so. I've been fortunate that um, a, a big per, a person that's had a lot of impact in my career is my uh, my CMO, Kip. I've always worked with Kip, um, and I think it talks to the fact that I one of the one of the most important things for your career is the person that you, who who your manager is, and I've been very fortunate in that. So that's been a big part of it. I think um, the Reforge crew, like I got to know Brian. He he launched he launched Reforge. And I got to them a little bit, but even just like reading their content and thinking about like learning the way that Brian thinks and that Reforge, um, their processes, their frameworks, I think it's really good for marketers to go through, learn a little bit about that. Um, and then Shane Parrish, who does the, I don't know if you know, he does the kind of SF, FS blog. I'm probably going to go blank on it, but he talks a lot about mental models. And I really, lo- I really love that. I love trying to figure out how I can think about things differently. And that's why I'm trying to practice a little bit of the, I try to practice first principles, um, have a long way to go, but I I think that's been a big resource for me. Should read the book principles by Ray Dalio. That's an awesome book. If you haven't read it. Yeah, I I have it. Yeah. You have it. Yeah. I need to read it. Yeah. It's on my Kindle. Awesome. Uh, Kieran, what does success mean to you today? Uh, getting to work getting to work with people I like in a place that I like, like location. So people nice. I like location. I like, um, are you there right now? Yeah. I mean, my, I mean, I, I recently moved, um, moved a month ago to a place I've always wanted to live. It's right by the beach in Ireland, a place called Malahide. And awesome. yeah, that's me. That to me is that's, that's the good life, right? I, I, <laughs> I make all of my decisions based upon, um, who I get to work with, which is more important to me than anything. And then, uh, where I get to work from. Awesome. Love it. Uh, so Kieran, last question, uh, you know, just for those in the audience, where can they get in touch with you, uh, learn more about what you're working on and, uh, just say hello. Yeah, you can go to, uh, just my first and last name, kieranflanagan.io and you can find all of the things there and then you can connect me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Okay. Awesome. We'll put those in the, in the show notes for you guys to check out. Thank you so much, Kieran. This has been amazing. Absolutely. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Thank you all for listening in to this episode and joining SAS District today. Don't forget to leave a review and subscribe for future episodes where we interview top leaders in the SaaS industry. If you're a SaaS company looking to grow and unlock the true value of your business, get in touch with us at horizoncapital.com and myself or one of our consultants will provide a free assessment to help you get there and hit your goals. If you have any feedback or suggestions for this podcast, please DM us on Instagram or LinkedIn at Horizon Capital and help us improve our content for you all. Thanks again and hope to see you on the next one.